0: Is May 12th. And in advance, Sona, happy Mother's Day. Oh,
1: thank you, You're Conan. a terrific
0: mom, and your kids are here today Did with you us.
1: get me a present?
0: I'm Well, it's not May 12th yet, but oh. I'm getting you one. Okay, thank yeah. you. Well, guess what? Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. You can shop by price, category, or browse curated gift lists ranging from for the mom who has everything to the gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted. I like I when you can so go by easy. price because I can go right down to the bottom. Oh, Getting lines of something for a dollar. Sorry, baby. Oh. <laughs> Top gifts include Beats headphones, digital photo frames, Polaroid cameras, and the Samsung smart TV, The Frame. Oh, yeah. Shop now at Macy's.com slash gift finder. And happy Mother's Day, moms.
2: Mm. Hi, my name is James Burrows, and I feel sanguine.
0: About being Conan O'Brien's friend. No one's ever used sanguine. No, I think that's the first. We've had people be uh, cautiously optimistic. President Obama. President Obama was cautiously optimistic. <laughs> and it turned out to be true. He's never spoken to me since. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, Walking blues. climb the fence, books and pens, I can be friends. Yes, I can tell that we are
0: gonna be friends Hey everybody, welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend Joined by my good companions, my chums, my chows,
3: Chos? Ch- Ch-
0: yeah, chos Like muchachos? bros, yeah Oh, yeah, chows, yeah.
1: That's cool Brums yeah, my, and chows, Yeah
0: uh, Son of Matt Garley yeah. Hi gang What's up, Cho? Hey You know, it's so funny because we always chat for a while you know, take these weird mind journeys together. And then eventually I announce who the guest is. Right. But- I was just looking at it right now and thinking, what if like three years from now we've just we're starting to phone it in because mm-hmm. we're not we're still giving it at our, oh, our yeah. all. It's a oh, you project. guys are
1: you guys still are? Oh, you we are. Okay, okay. Well,
0: you were phoning it in six <laughs> years before we started the podcast. Many times, <laughs> often on an actual phone. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah.
0: But what if you know it's like, hey, this gunner Brown needs a friend. James Burrows is on the show. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> There was no no talk beforehand. Let's you know, see no, how we could do the fastest one possible where we, we say hi and say the name. How about this? Here we go. Connor Bryant needs a friend. Sona. Hi. Matt. Hi. James Burroughs. Yeah. Nice.
1: Nice.
4: I think funny. we can
0: do it even faster. Okay. COB needs friends. Sona. Yeah. Matt. Hi. James Burroughs. Yeah.
1: I didn't say a word. You said, you said. I got nervous. Oh. I got really nervous. But I think, do you think there's ever going to I can be, do it even better. Why this? Oh, fist. Okay.
0: Connor Bryan needs a friend. Matt. Hi. James Burrows. Oh. <laughs> and then I bring up Sona later. Wait,
1: why? Not in the intro.
0: I don't know. We save time. Yeah. Are we gonna
1: have beef? Are we gonna break up like Slash and Axel one day? Oh
3: what No, if they that got happens? back together again,
0: didn't
1: they? Yeah, but like you don't, I mean
0: What do
3: you think the beef will be?
1: I don't know. What do you think
0: the Maybe I, it should
3: be over actual beef? <laughs>
0: I think it'd be terrific <laughs> if I found out, here's the beef. The beef is I find out that Sona is using our new podcast building uh. to store beef. <laughs> That's why it's so You're cold. getting beef through some uncle. Where's this beef? This is Yerevan beef, the finest beef from Yerevan. That's good beef. And uh, <laughs> everyone wants their beef from Yerevan. Everyone That's wants good Yerevan, beef. Yerevan beef. And uh, you have found that in the edit room downstairs, it's cool enough to store beef. Yeah. And you're using it, and some of it runs, and the uh, the juices uh, short out, oh. short out. Our video systems and various technological mm, advances.
1: <laughs> you couldn't figure out like wiring, and, like lingo.
3: <laughs> wires and
0: <laughs> tubes and such. You know what? We will never have a beef. You know why? Because why? we always have beef. Mm-hmm? You know what oh, I mean? All we do is fight. Yeah. I, I guess so our this beef thing falls beef would, apart yes, when we get along. Right. Oh. So we can never let that happen. Mm. I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> I think it's going to be okay. I
1: think we're going to be fine. I think yeah. we're going
0: to be more than fine. And I don't, I think we should... You know, we're not going to vote it in because we're always searching. Always searching for new things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And it just okay. seems to happen organically with us. We never know what we're going to talk about. And right. then before you know it, we've taken some crazy cerebral journey that's explained space time continuum. And we I didn't don't even think know. we've it. ever done that. never did that we once. No, no, we've like talked that. about scrotums. Yeah. yeah.
1: And space porn yeah. and lots of jizz talk. Just, I talk
0: about, yeah, yeah, the family I grew up with a lot. You yeah. do. Yeah. Sort of some dysfunctional stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. No. no it's,
0: a... it's really nothing that contributes to society in any way. Okay.
1: anyway.
0: Jim Burroughs? Jim Burrows,
4: (laughs) My guest today.
0: You know, my guest today has directed uh, more than a thousand episodes of sitcom television, including, this is an insane list, such iconic shows as The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Bob Newhart Show, Cheers, Friends, and Will and Grace. He's won 11 episodes. Emmys for his work. That's too many Emmys, I think. he mm-hmm. yeah. should give some away. Um, he's won 11 Emmys for his work and now has a new book directed by James Burroughs. And I really love this book because it talks about so many of the TV shows that influenced me and meant, have meant so much to me. So very cool. He's here. I'm thrilled. He's in the building. James Burroughs, welcome. This is a delight for me. I owe you a great debt of thanks, as do anyone who's listening, because you have been uh, a force behind so many of my favorite television shows that influenced me, made me want to get into television, changed my life. Bob Newhart and Mary Tyler Moore Show were the shows that I got to watch. I believe it was Saturday night, and it was a huge deal.
2: It's when people uh, watch television on Saturday
0: night. They don't do that anymore. No, and we used to. It's very hard to explain to people, and I'm going to sound like an old man, (laughs) but it was a, a ritual. We would gather around the television set, and we would fight for who gets to sit we grew up in a kooky old, it's a wonderful life house and it had an iron heating grate. And you wanted, if you could get on that, there was six kids. If you could get on the iron heating grate, it was a good thing. I'm sorry,
3: which Dickens character? Wrote?
0: <laughs> I had my fingerless gloves. Okay. I was an accountant and a pickpocket. Uh, but I would watch, we would watch Mary Tyler Moore. We would watch Bob Newhart. Those shows were really important to me. And it's so stunning to read your book, which I absolutely love. But your book, directed by James Burroughs, which is out there and definitely worth grabbing. I look at it and I think you could have written a book just about working on Mary Tyler Moore (laughs) and doing some episodes of Bob Newhart. That's a book I would read. But then you go on, you have the gall to go on (laughs) and help create Cheers and direct pretty much every Cheers episode. Then again, you should, you know, enough, but Taxi, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, I love The Comeback, and your appearance in The Comeback (laughs) is uh, uh, as (laughs) some version of yourself. (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) And you uh, you were fantastic in that role. I'm hard pressed to think of someone else who can reference their work and appeal to someone that my parents would say, oh my God, I love those shows. I love those shows. And then you could talk to any punk kid today and they'd say, wait a minute, you worked on Will and Grace and Friends. Th- there's a continuity there that's unheard of.
2: Uh, yeah. I'm, yeah, It's going to be, uh, in a couple of years, it'll be 50 years. Wow. Because I started in 74. Mm-hmm. The Mary Tyler Moore Show was my first show. I had nothing to do with it. I came in the third year, the fourth year. It had already been established. And, uh, he, and New Heart was the same. I was just a guest director on those shows. So I do credit them in my book. But but I had little to do with the formulation, but I did get a chance to direct those wonderful actors.
0: What's clear to me in reading the book is that your father, Abe Burroughs, this incredibly talented man who'd worked in show business. Uh, I mean, he's a writer, he's a performer, knew everybody. He said that when you were a kid, you didn't quite knew, know where you fit into the equation. You liked music. You had an ear for music. And I feel like that is the through line to me of the book is you developed an ear i think early on and then by working with on on these incredible shows early on you picked up and helped develop this sense of rhythm that is i think essential to all your work yeah
2: and essential to all comedy yeah as you know comedy is all rhythm yeah, you can give uh, a person who's not funny a line to read, a joke, and they will put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, you know?
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but
4: can, we funny. Fi- can we fix
0: that in editing? It'd <laughs> be great if we fixed that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so you can't learn that. You have to be born with that. You can certainly learn the technical aspects of, uh, of how, to do, uh, how to film a sitcom and, uh, you know, because you're doing a play and filming a play, but you can't learn the funny and the funny is music. Uh, and I talk in the book about my father, in, uh, when he was doing straight plays, would walk backstage and he'd listen with his ear. He wouldn't see the actors. He'd listen with his ear and he'd listen to the rhythms. And uh, he once said to me he would, he would do that and then if he heard a pause... He knew nobody was dancing, so he knew he was in trouble. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, at times, I don't even look at the monitors. I don't even look at the actors. I sometimes close my eyes and just, you know, try to hear the rhythms and try to prevent an actor on the way to the joke of screwing up the joke mm-hmm. because 90% of humor is surprise. So if an actor gets the joke wrong going to it, you know, when he gets it right, the audience is not going to laugh as hard because he's already right. screwed up the joke. Right. So it, that's my job, really, because you're in front of a live audience and you want to protect the humor. So, But it is musical. Uh, you know, I sung when I was 12 years old. I auditioned for the Metropolitan Opera Boys Chorus and uh, I sang I Think uh, America the Beautiful and I I got in, mm-hmm. and for five years I was I was this, uh, boy soprano in uh, all the operas at the Metropolitan Opera, so that was more musical for me and. Uh, I play bad piano. <laughs> uh,
0: I, uh, <laughs> Which is surprisingly much harder than good piano. <laughs> Very difficult to play the piano badly. I know. Uh,
2: my dad was going for surgery, and uh, I think this is attributed to him or not, and he said to the doctor on the way in, will I be able to pay, play the piano? Mm-hmm. And the doctor said, absolutely. He said, good, because I couldn't play it before.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, though, because I
0: in reading your book, you know, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, these are in a way your apprenticeship shows, and I'm hard pressed to think of better rhythmic shows at that time. If you think about Bob Newhart's rhythm, and I've had the great honor of getting to know him and be friends with him, uh, you know, in, in my career. And anytime the phone rings and it's Bob, I am transported. I mean, I just feel, you've probably had this a million times over, but I just think, I don't care what happens to me now, <laughs> I made it that the phone rang and it's Bob Newhart on the other end of the line. He is still as sharp and funny as ever. And that rhythm, that rhythm that he established on his early records, Button Down Mind, I know those were influential to you. Yeah. It's just as good today as it was in 1962, You know, just <laughs> as funny.
2: Yeah, my dad uh, My dad sent me uh, Bob's record and he also sent me the 2,000-year-old man. Mm-hmm when I was in college, I think in 1960, and I was, uh, I was the, all of a sudden the hub of the dorm because all these guys from, you know, I went to college in Ohio at Oberlin, and these guys who didn't grow up in New York City and, you know, came to Oberlin because it was very ecumenical from, from all around the country. Um, and they would just sit there and roar, especially a 2,000-year-old man. Because, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, so the fact that I got to work with Newhart was just because I was such a fan of his. Just, you know, the, 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 I don't know if it's in the book, but the great line uh, one of the producers said to him, I think in the pilot said to him, Can you not stammer so much? Yeah. And he said, That stammer built a house in Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs>
0: He also loves to tell the story of on one of his early records. The audio engineer, uh, and listen up here, Eduardo. But the audio engineer heard these long pauses in, in little stammers and took them out. Oh, God. and Bob Newhart went back and went, uh, you- <laughs> same idea. You're screwing with the formula here. You leave those in. I mean, he was amazing, and you know,
2: also he he did warm up in a multi-camera sitcom, there's an audience and the audience has to be warmed up before the, I'm sure when you were doing your show, you had a guy yep. warm up the audience. Yeah. And Newhart would do that. Newhart would come out and tell the parrot joke, the same parrot joke, mm-hmm. and the audience would, you know, just go crazy. Yeah. And he was, it was amazing. He's such a sweet man and still with us and still with it.
0: Yes. Yeah. And still as funny as ever. Um, so your career moves along and the... What's clear to me reading the book is that probably, I mean, this, your first massive success in a long string of massive successes, but the one I think that still feels most near and dear to your heart is Cheers. Yes. Because you helped formulate that show with Glenn and Les Charles. You helped make that show and you're there and you're putting the whole thing together. And this is, you read the, you read your account of it and it sounds like just the perfect experience. All the way through, cast, writers, the way it was received once it's uh, beloved, it just felt joyous the whole ride.
2: It was it was a wonderful experience. Uh, uh, I met the boys. I met the—I called them the boys, the brothers on Phyllis. They were story editors, and I was the permanent director of the first— first year and uh, so I met them then and then we re- reconnected on Taxi they were the producers and I was the director of Taxi which was uh, you know a wonderfully funny show but it was just it was really hard it was the first time I used four cameras and I had this cast that was interplanetary and <laughs> yes
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, and so we went through a lot. And at that point, you know, Jim Brook, Jim Brooks, who was one of the great comedy minds mm-hmm. and going to great comedy writers, was also doing a movie, so he wasn't there on certain days. And you know, there were other producers who had certain ideas, and Jim certain So it was, it was, you know, the show turned out fine, but it was really difficult. And then we. We we started to talk about doing our own show. We had the same agent who said uh, you guys should do your own show. And uh, in the book, I talk about you know we love faulty towers. And, yeah, uh, yeah. We thought about a hotel, and then we thought about the bar, and then we thought about a bar in Barstow, and then we thought uh, um, we do. We're all sports fans, so we're going to do something in Boston or Philadelphia. We chose Boston. It, well, we formulated these characters, and the, the original conception of the show, believe it or not, was. Sam Malone, the Lothario, working for a woman. Mm -hmm. So the boys went off to write the script, and I went on my first honeymoon, and uh, I came back home, the script was on my doorstep, I read it, and I said, you brought radio back to television. Because it was so literate, and they had created this character of Diane Chambers. I had nothing to do with it. That Mm -hmm. was all their work. And uh, it was so smooth, it was scary how the process went. We... You know, we I knew about Teddy because I had auditioned him for Best of the West, and uh, Shelley Long had been out there, and mm-hmm. people had been trying to get her. So they both fell in, and they, we, they wrote the part for Rhea because they knew Rhea from Taxi, mm-hmm. and... It just went so smoothly, and we had a deal with NBC. We got to do two pilots, and they would have to make one, and this was the first pilot, and we had big fans at NBC. Grant Tinker mm-hmm. was brought in to run it, who brought me out to California, and Brandon Tarnikoff, who was my close friend, yeah. was there. So it went great, and we, you know, we debuted, like, in 70th place. Nobody watched us. There was no reason to watch us, but the rest is history.
0: Quick note, you bring up Grant Tinker who uh, was married to Mary Moore mm-hmm. and, and and ran that company. MTM. MTM. Yeah,
2: I mean, they both hired the creative people and left them alone. And that doesn't go on anymore. Mm-mm. You know, when you get network notes on a show, I said, if you guys knew what you're doing, you'd have nothing but hits on the air. Yeah, You know, so yeah. it's... Back in those days, it was, you know, hire these guys, you know, these guys coming off taxi who had been trained for six or seven years in doing multi-camera sitcom and let them do the work. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't
0: go on anymore. I always tried to have some sense of compassion about this or empathy because I realized that if you hire a bunch of people and you pay them a lot of money to give notes... They're going to give notes because they have to. <laughs> they
2: have to assert themselves in some ways. It's never an innovative note. No. It's always an imitative note. We've had success before with this kind of character, so why don't we go back to that? If the, their notes would make shows all homogeneous and not, you know, not you'd never been doing a Will and Grace. You'd never we would never gotten away with Cheers or Taxi or you know unless you're we we had with Glenn and Les and with Jim Brooks and people like that. They just Told the network, okay, fine, goodbye, you know, we'll do it. So you can see the product now is not as good as it was.
0: There used to be a rule in sitcoms, a diehard rule, I'm talking about the 1950s, 60s, that you always have to – the episode needs to end where it started. The world can't change. I always use the example of Gilligan's Island at the end of the episode. they're still on the island. They have to still be on the island. And that was a, that was just one of the rules that was a solid rule of television for a long time. And then it starts to change. And you're part of that change of, no, we don't end up always at the same place where we left off. Things evolve. That felt like a, a huge shift.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, At the end of the first year, we have that great scene where they kiss and we had to. We knew we were going to uh, get them together the second year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, you know, no, no more teasing. We had to get him together because if Sam Malone couldn't bet a woman in a year, what kind of stud is he? Yes. You
4: know? <laughs> 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 right, Okay.
2: So we were excoriated for that. Howard, I still have Howard Rosenberg's review in the LA Times, who said the show is over. Yeah, it's lost the magic. It, it but we said. Uh, we didn't care. We knew we had to be evolving. We knew we had to get them together and break them up, get them together and break them up. And we knew that at the end of every year, we would the, the boys would write themselves into a corner. Mm-hmm. They'd break them up somehow, and then figure out in the summer how to get them back together again yeah. or not. And it yielded, you know, I mean, when at the end of the second year, when Diane flips out and goes into the loony bin, mm-hmm. in the first episode of third year, she brings her doctor into Cheers. Uh, who has told her go back and confront your demons? And the doctor was Fraser Crane. Yeah. And so, so that's that's what happened. And uh, you know, we finally, when Shelley decided she didn't want to do the show anymore, we had to, in essence, break him up and, uh, and go then, back to the original conception of the show when we sat around talking about it, which is Sam working for a woman.
0: Yeah. Chris Alley comes in and he has to work for her. And I didn't realize that was the original idea. Yeah. But such a good, such a good flip. And, and putting them... You didn't try and recreate Shelley Long's role with someone else.
2: How can you? No, you know who became Diane? Frazier. Yeah. Frasier did all the upscale jokes. Yeah. And Bebe and uh, Lilith Sternit. Right. They did all the upscale humor, so we didn't miss Diane in that way. We missed her. I mean, she, Shelley... Without Shelley Long, that show doesn't get to year two. Yeah. That's how brilliant she was. Yeah. She was
0: amazing. The, um, the casting... And this is something else I want to talk about. People don't often realize how difficult casting is. You have to catch lightning in a bottle, and first of all, finding Kelsey Grammer to play Fraser Crane. But then later on, when you find David Hyde Pierce <laughs> to play his brother, when you guys, when you know, uh, when your casting director finds this person, the casting is just insanely good. And, and you can't imagine... There was no one else who could have played Kelsey Grammer's brother other than David Hyde Pierce. It was just perfect.
2: Kelsey owes his career, and I've told him this to John Lithgow. Mm-hmm. Because when, it, when the boys wrote Fraser Crane, they went to Lithgow, who would have been great. Oh. you know. And John didn't want to do a series then. And so we looked at a lot of people, and then Kelsey's face appeared on a, a tape from New York City, and we all started laughing.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: He was 28 years old then. <sighs> and... Uh, we brought him out, and he—I think—he lived in his car for a little bit, until you know he—he he got going. But he was amazing. He was a four—he was a four-show arc to get Diane back in the bar. But once that first show happened, we knew we had to keep him. Right. I didn't create Fraser. Fraser was created by uh, Angel Casey and Lee, mm-hmm. who came to us and said they wanted to spin Fraser off. And their genius was they took an actor, Kelsey Grammer, and made him Sam Malone and made David Hyde Pierce Frazier.
0: Wow, yeah, yeah.
2: That's how good an actor Kelsey is, that he can go from kind of a strange dude on Cheers uh, to uh, the center of a show. Yeah. And they could bring David in to play Frazier,
0: so... Who's more Frazier than (laughs) Frazier. If you can't find it in California, man, you got a problem. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I made that up on my own. Anyway, I love California. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. You know, it's incredible to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places, whether it's taking video calls from the park, Or emailing large files while you're grocery shopping. Sona, this is good for you. Is it? Because you're always doing whatever work you do for me from fun locations.
1: But I like blaming it on not having reception.
4: I
0: know, but you can't do that here. Working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile, Sona. Then you got no excuses. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Plus... They also cover more highway miles with 5G than anybody else. Check it out if you don't believe me. Hey, Blake, you've got T-Mobile, right? I do. I was actually just up in the woods in Idlewild. It was fantastic for the weekend. And uh, my T-Mobile didn't miss it. My T-Mobile phone didn't miss it. You know, beep. I wouldn't think you'd need a cell phone because you speak so loudly into a microphone. <laughs> well, I had to look some stuff up. Just take Sorry. it Just take it down. I didn't notch. know when
3: brunch was. I can hear
0: him. <laughs> when the restaurant's open for brunch. Okay. Uh, so I used uh, my T-Mobile coverage to That's check out brunch. Way. That's brunch. All right. Anyway, wherever you are, you know, take it from the loud-speaking blay. If you're on the go, you want to be in the know, you want to make the show, what? Uh, T-Mobile, okay. that's the one for you. I should weird. have rhymed it with go. Anyway, <laughs> find out more at tmobilecom mobilecom slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Heard this, but I loved reading when you guys were putting cheers together. John Ratzenberger came in and read for the part of Norm, mm-hmm. didn't have a great audition, and he's walking out thinking, and you guys are thinking, well, we won't ever see him again. And he turns around and says,
2: Do you have a blowhard in the bar?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we,
2: said, we said, No. Yeah. So. And he explained, right? <laughs> yeah. He, he went into the whole thing. <laughs> And and we said wow. So we hired Ratzenberger for the pilot. He's in the pilot because he's he talks about the sweatiest movie ever made. That, <laughs> that whole repartee, yeah, yeah. Which was which when we were in the office talking about the show, we heard somebody at the Paramount Commissary talking to his friend about what's the sweatiest movie ever made. So we stole that, and uh because we had done a lot of research in bars about bar conversation, everything like that. Mm-hmm. So Rats did that. So Rats was hired for the pilot. He was. Not hired for the second show, but we realized that we missed him. So he's the only (laughs) permanent member of the cast that's missing one show. (laughs) He only did 274 out of 275.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But amazing that he... in the audition I mean anyone listening right now is going to think that's what I have to do <laughs> <laughs> is turn to them and say do you have a goalkeeper in your show do you have a lion tamer but he knew uh, brilliant idea and um, just such a great tool for the writers a know it all a yeah. guy who knows everything or thinks he knows everything is just a gift to the writing room yeah and to give him
2: credibility the great trick that we did was Sam would listen to him mm-hmm. and Coach would listen to him. Coach with wide eyes. Nikki would listen to him and give him credibility. (laughs) Right. And especially Teddy. If Teddy listened to you as Sam, the bartender, then you had credibility. So that's, that's, you know, that was the great thing about that show.
0: I couldn't believe this because this will get people's attention if you want to mark how things have changed the final episode of cheers watched by 84.4 million people
1: oh my god
0: now i heard anecdotally the other day someone was talking about a network show one of those kind of reality game show type shows i don't remember which one that it got picked up for another season and it got a 0.5 in the demo (laughs) and got picked up that's the world we're in. Yes, now. it is. That uh, if you can get nine people watching a television, show, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, you are. You know, everyone's wants to hand you a cigar and pop the champagne. Uh, it's it, it, and it must seem otherworldly to you. Was it
2: David Zaslav who's running uh, Discovery Now? Mm-hmm. said there's 580 shows on the air now. Yeah, yeah. Oh. you know, and there's what I don't know how many networks. 100, maybe 150. I always say, when I started out, there were three networks and 30 great comedy writers. Now there are 150 networks and 30 great comedy
0: writers. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. But that's, uh, that goes to this image I've had for a long time is what changed is the technology. This delivery system changed so that suddenly, instead of there being three networks... Not suddenly, but very quickly, and especially with streaming. There was the capability, uh, because of the delivery system and the economics, that's what changed, and suddenly there could be 600 shows. But why would you suddenly expect humankind to suddenly get 500 times more talented. It, it, uh, yeah. it's, it's not, and I always think of it as people wondering, I don't understand, technology just enabled us to widen the bathtub by 50 feet. What happened to the water level? This is what it is. Now, I'm, I think there's so much, there's a lot of really brilliant stuff out there, but it's still hard to find because the volume is insane. The volume of just noise and, you know, there's just... I never. I uh, I'm always cast adrift. If I don't know specifically what show I'm looking yeah. for, you can't scroll. I used to just scroll through television back in the day, right. and you could find something that caught you. There's no way you would scroll now. It's like saying I'm just going to wander the Mojave Desert and see what happens. <laughs> oh. right. Because
2: the shows that are hits, you know, like Ozark, and mm-hmm. you know, it has five million bytes on on Netflix, or it's just those are rare and probably. If you cull it all down, it's probably the same as when there were three networks. Yeah. You know, all the good shows, because that's where all the shows went. All the good shows went on those three networks. So it's just now so diverse that you can find a specific show for your your idiosyncrasy and mm-hmm. watch it. And maybe four other people are watching
0: it. When I first got started back in 1985, there was always this kind of sense out there that the place people really wanted to get to was movies, because that was somehow more prestigious and... That would be something that you'd hear sometime is, have you ever thought of writing a movie or get into the movies? And I always thought, there's nothing better for a writer than television. As, as you know, you can do such good work in television because of the way it's structured, writers have a lot more power in television than they do in movies. Oh, yes. In movies, they're completely rewritten. They're at the very bottom of the totem pole in movies, And have always been treated with a kind of disdain and let's just get another writer in here and let's, you know, let's completely redo it. But writers are at the center of television. One thing I really love about your book is you just reprint pages of great dialogue from all these shows and I'm reading them. It's like you say, it's just great radio writing. The rhythm is all there. It's terrific, solid writing that uh, is as good today as it was when it was first done. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's all was brilliantly realized. Whereas if it were a movie, I think chances are a lot of that could have been rewritten, tossed out, cut out. The
2: dialogue in the book is from is from the shows, from some of the shows I've done, but those that's tried and true because those sequences got huge laughs. Mm-hmm. And when we're doing a show, if you write a joke and it doesn't get a laugh, you go back and rewrite the joke.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: You don't rely on the writers. You rely on 200 and 300 people behind you.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: In movies, you're relying on the director and the writer, and it may not may not appeal to an audience, but those that dialogue in there got huge, huge laughs, mm-hmm. especially Will and Grace, which is just probably the funniest show I ever
0: did. Really, you think Will and Grace, I've loved that show, but thinking of all of them, you think that was, was it the writing or the writing plus the cast? It's the cast. It's
2: outrageous the so first really, other than Third Rock from the Sun, which I did, the pilot of, mm-hmm. it's the most outrageous show I ever did. I like to say it's a fairy tale, figuratively and literally.
4: <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> uh, it's a show with four girls. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's just the jokes are so hard and so strong, especially Karen's jokes and Jack's jokes. And uh, it's, you know, Cheers is my favorite and will always be my favorite because uh, it, I'm part of birthing that show. But um, Will and Grace, l- laughs per page is is the funniest show because Cheers was, we were about four minutes longer than Will and Grace. We were about 26 minutes. Will and Grace was 21 and a half minutes. So you could go a couple of pages without a joke on Cheers, which we did. A lot of Sam and Diane scenes are very riveting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tension filled, but there's always, you know, after a page or a page or two pages, there's a joke that undercuts it all and makes it, you know, it relieves you from the the, the dramatic moment. But on on Will and Grace, you couldn't do that. You didn't have enough time, so it's hmm. just joke after joke and uh, just uh, the funniest show, per, you know, per per. The, well,
0: the minute. compression, the comedy compression, yeah, yeah. is. Uh Is there and that show had such a fascinating arc because it 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 ran uh, had a great run big hit beloved it leaves and then it comes back (laughs) a number of years later and I was I was hard pressed to think of another show that that did that the Connors yeah the Connors that's right that's right and their their show is
2: just as good even without Roseanne it's amazing because they have that it's one of my favorite shows because they have that style this they underplay everything everything is like this you know goodman is like this and laurie's like this you know every there's not effort but there's this rhythm in that show you know they don't hit you over the head with the jokes it's just wow that rebooted, you know, and then they did fuller house and you know stuff like that. but you know, and when we did the second version of Will and Grace, we tried to deal, because it was ten years later, we tried to deal with the fact that they were older and they were wearing glasses, and their problems were different than they were mm-hmm. in the first incarnation. You know, first incarnation was, you know, it helped start a movement. you know, when we ended after, I think it was eight years the first run. Everybody was fine with the gays, mm-hmm. you know, so we were not novel anymore. Right. So uh, we tried to come back with a different bent on it, how, you know, these people have aged and what they're dealing with. And are they as lonely as they seemed in the first episode and everything like
0: that? Mm-hmm. So. It was a great joke, I think, where they opened the refrigerator on yeah. the- was it Will who opens the? Yeah, uh, Sean. Yeah, Sean opens refrigerator. I forget what, what is he. It's it was
2: it was not in the show, oh, but yeah. it was in the show. Got rebooted because we did a video for Hillary Clinton. Got it. And uh, yeah, Jack came in, open refrigerator. He said, "Everything
0: in here looks ten years old." <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> but you could tell, probably, just
0: you guys came together to make this short for Hillary Clinton's campaign, and that's what inspired the the reboot. Yeah, Bob greenblatt was there and, and loved it on a personal note you mentioned uh, james l brooks uh who, who you referenced as one of the great maybe the greatest tv comedy writer of all time and i would i would second that motion i worked with him on the simpsons and one of the things that struck me is uh, when you came up with an idea for an episode there was a day of the year where you would go in and you would pitch it to to jim brooks and so I went in and I was pitching him this idea and he liked it and he started to laugh.
1: Oh, oh, oh. Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, 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 some kind of a seabird. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And I and I heard the laugh. And a electric jolt went up my spine and I said, I know that laugh because if you listen to an old Mary Tyler Moore episode, you can hear him laughing. Uh. And, And he
2: laughs, not when the audience is laughing. No. He laughs at attitudes. Yeah. When there's a funny when on Taxi when Danny would you know sizing somebody up before he said a line you would hear Jim start laughing you know that <laughs> strange laugh that he has and uh,
0: so I knew I, it was just so odd I hadn't put two and two together and then I realized I've subliminally heard this laugh sitting on the heat vent in, <laughs> in 1974 in Brookline Massachusetts and now I'm pitching to this guy and he laughing, and it's it all came together. Yeah, it's very
2: eerie. Did, were you ever in the room with him when he was when he would pitch? Oh yeah. Oh my God. Some of the stuff I'll never forget. The because uh, uh, I uh, when I was doing Taxi, I would come into the rewrite room and, and I would stay till ten o'clock because I had to get up in the morning with the actors and block the next day. But I would be in the r- rewrite room just to hear and to know what the writers wanted. So I was more educated when mm-hmm. the actors came in and. We were doing a scene where um, Lotka, a, a box arrives from his old country mm-hmm. with a liqueur called. Brefnish. And uh, uh, so this was the idea that uh, and and Jim pitched the scene where all the the cabbies line up to try Brefnish and Judd's the first one. Mm -hmm. And he tries it and he falls on the floor and Reverend Jim says, the line forms behind me.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Out of of the top of his head. Yeah.
2: I mean, it was, (laughs) you know, it was amazing. He was amazing that one. The audience has to be invested in the characters. You know, you have to give them something underneath that grounds the characters. And, uh, you know, with Cheers, we, we made Sam an ex-alcoholic mm-hmm. because that gave him, although he's, you know, he's a stud and wants to go to bed with every woman, he still... Underneath, there's a kind of sadness
0: to mm-hmm. him, and he blew his his career. Yeah, blew, yeah, b- yeah, 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 b- yeah.
2: So that's important. That's what grounds him. That's why where audiences identify with them. You know, with every character, Louis De Palma, you identify with him by his lot in life, by how he looks. Mm-hmm. You know, he's angry, but you attribute it to well the, the the hand he was dealt. The same with Carla. You know, with Diane. Even with Diane, you still you know. She wanted to be a, a professor, but she was never going to be a professor. She was, she was going to be a waitress, and so that's what you know. Because peop, real people identify with that.
0: You know, it's interesting because in the book you point out, and I hadn't thought about this either, which is that in, uh, and I thought it was fascinating that in your guys' opinion, all of these characters have these flaws have these um, inner conflicts, they're constantly being broken, they're constantly being put back together again, except for one, Norm. <laughs> and, you, and you say, Norm is just the one truly centered, happy character who's, who, sits, who kind of anchors the whole thing. And I thought, oh, yeah, I see that now. That I hadn't thought of it quite that way. Yeah, he's,
2: well, you know, he's, uh, he's happy just sitting on a barstool. You know, having saying one more for the road and never leaving. The, in fact, the only <laughs> yeah. time, the only time uh, we we addressed designated driving was in the pilot episode when Coach ta- drives Norm home because mm-hmm. he's been there too long. But we we never did again. Norm is Norm is a character that everybody knows. Yeah, I had a Norm at the Allstate Bar in New York City. Uh, it was a guy who sat at the end of the bar and just and literally said, one more and I'm out of here. And, you know, at the end of the evening, he was still there. And <laughs> yeah. everybody knows Norm.
0: There's great. Um, some of the dialogue that you reprint in here is, I said so great, but just I was reading through all these Norm lines. And oh. they are so, um, so fantastic. And there's one where he's, I think Sam's closing up and... Norm just says, "Wow, 17 and a half hours just flew by."
4: <laughs> but there's
0: so many great pages of norm lines in here that are that it's, are fantastic. It
2: saves me writing. So, uh,
0: <laughs> hey, I noticed that. Yeah. But the Writers Guild wants to talk yeah, to you, by the way. The
2: evolution, the evolution of the normism, I talk about in the book. The evolution of the normism is that in the pilot, in front of the pilot audience, when Norm entered and says, uh, afternoon, everybody, and everybody says, Norm, because that was from uh, Nicky Colasanto who had a bar. He was from Rhode Island and in Providence. He had a bar where everybody screamed his name when he walked in. Right. And Sam said, what do you know? And Norm says, not enough. And that was not written as a joke. That was not written as a joke. Right. And when the audience roared at that line, I looked at Glenn, and I looked at Glenn Charles, and I said, you know, and I, I looked at him with the look of saying, oh, my God, they're laughing at a character. Yeah, yeah. This roly-poly guy saying not enough. You know, if you had another guy coming in doing it, it would not have been the same as George doing it. Right. And uh, so it became incumbent upon us every time he entered to do, you know, to do a joke. You know, there was so many of them like... Uh, uh, Sam, pour me a beer. It's 9 a.m. Float a cornflake in it.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, there was this scene that I always remembered, and I was so glad you reprinted it in here, where a little boy comes into the bar. Oh, that's in the pilot. It's in the pilot. That's and a teaser. And... Um, it, God the boy comes in, how about a beer, Chief? And Sam says, Uh, how about an ID? And the kid says, An ID? That's very flattering. Where do I tell the misses? <laughs> and Sam looks at the ID and he goes, Ah, military ID. First sergeant Walter Keller, born nineteen forty four. That makes you thirty eight. Must have fought in Vietnam. Boy says, Oh yeah. Sam says, What was it like? Boy gross <laughs> Sam yeah that's what they say war is gross and then he says I'm sorry soldier and the boy goes this is the thanks we get
4: <laughs> I mean
0: that's that's the best uh, that's just a uh, best TV I mean, writing imaginable that's, you know? uh,
2: that's how the pilot opens yeah it's that, such, it's so great I mean it was originally later on in the show but we moved it up and we uh, we could do a tag or a teaser so a uh, teaser's before the show tags at the end of the show so so we moved it up to be uh, uh, the teaser, and it was uh, John Navin was the kid's name. I'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. And Teddy was so great, yeah, in that scene, yeah, because he wasn't mean. He was sweet with the
0: kid, tolerant, and it it just set that character. He's yes anding the whole time. You know, yeah. he's he's saying, uh huh, okay, well, let's take a look. <laughs> you know, very good first sergeant. All right. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on that really speaks to uh, how much things have changed is, you know, you, you see, uh, Cheers now and it's, it's replayed, you know, all over the world constantly. And what I always appreciate is, it has a theme song. And only does it have a theme song, it has one of the best theme songs ever. But it is no quick affair. You know, it is a real theme song. Um, I think it charted, too. I think it was up at the top of the charts, that song. Yeah, wasn't it? it was. Everybody well, knows your name?
2: It was going to the top, except uh, Billy Jean came out
0: <laughs> in 1982. Yeah. And yeah. I couldn't moonwalk. <laughs> 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 but I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it, my, so much of my uh, childhood affection is revolves around these theme songs, you know, the, the Get Smart theme song, uh, Hawaii Five-0, um, F Troop, you know, <laughs> seem, I mean, that's what an amazing, but just that would tell a story and an, an amazing music in these orchestras, Wild Wild West, just incredible theme songs. And you think about today they're gone because you can't spend the time. A show has to start immediately. You can barely show the title of the show and that's about it.
2: Yeah, because if you have a theme song, it takes away from content and uh, uh, you can't do it anymore. Again, Cheers said we had 26 minutes to tell a tale. Now you only have 21 and a half minutes. So there's no time for a theme song. You know, the theme song is uh, that tells the whole story of that show. That was was written by Gary Portnoy and Judy Hart Angelo. Judy is the, is the wife or is the widow of John Angelo, who's my close friend, Mm -hmm. who was an investment banker and wrote me, uh, called me and said his wife is done raising kids. She wants to go back to music writing. Can she send you a song for your show? And so that was a the song they sent. <laughs> and you guys it, knew
0: right away when you heard oh that song. Oh my god. Yeah.
2: Oh my god. And the you know if you if you google it the lyrics that were originally written are really funny lyrics. Mm-hmm. But we we couldn't do you can't do a funny lyrics every week, uh, right. you know. Right. So that we made them more generic. But it's it's a wonderful song that encapsulates that show perfectly.
0: So people for years now have been saying Well, the sitcom is dead. I know that they've said that repeatedly off and on for 40 years. You're not buying it. Uh, me? Yeah, you're uh, not, you don't buy that it's, that it's over for the uh, traditional sitcom.
2: Well, I've, I've, uh, I've dressed in a dark suit about four times for the death of sitcom. No. You know? <laughs>
4: uh,
2: and every time I've gotten to the funeral, they've closed the casket. Right. So I'm a little concerned now. This is the first time. <clears throat> and I don't know why studios aren't doing it anymore or networks aren't doing it anymore. Or even streamers are not doing it anymore. It's economical.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: It's funny. The audiences love it. They watch they watch all these shows and reruns, so I don't know. I have no reason why it is declining so much. Yeah, I've listened to people try to explain it, and I can't explain it. But selfishly, I was there for a golden age of television yeah. when it was when it was king. So uh, I'm sad now that it's uh, there are very few. There's like The Neighborhood, Cedric the Entertainer show, and mm-hmm. uh, Chuck Lorre has. Uh, Bob Hart's Mm Abyshella. But I don't know any other sitcom.
0: I had this thought a couple of years ago, maybe more than a couple of years ago, but it was um, around the time that people were wondering, well, what's going on with the multi-camera sitcom in front of a live audience? And I started to wonder if there's a generation, I'm thinking about my kids, that have come of age watching single camera. And, And maybe this comes from reality television, that it's inculcated in them that that's the real world.
2: Uh, Maybe, but Friends is still the most popular show. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's in front of a live audience. So I'm not sure why. Yeah. I'm not sure. You know, you need one great sitcom, but I haven't seen it come down the pike yet.
0: It's amazing. I know that you worked, you very much regretted that you didn't get to direct. You wanted to be the, the guy that directed most of the Friends episodes, but you weren't able to commit to that early on in the show. You did the pilot and you did a number of those shows. I but did 15 of them. You did 15 of them. Um, did you know right away when they got that group together that- uh, On all the
2: sitcoms I do, on all the pilots I do, I have a test audience
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, three days before we shoot the show. I have a single camera and that helps me if if there's a set that the whole audience can't see. The the camera will go down there and just shoot a master so the audience can see it. And on that show, it was through the roof. That single-camera audience, they love those characters. Mm-hmm. They love them. You know, I did the first, I think, three or four, and, I, you know, there's a story about me taking the cast to Vegas because I knew there was something special about this show. Uh, so, you know, that happened on Will & Grace. That happened on Cheers. The only show I that happened on that wasn't a success was a show called The Class, which was written by David Crane and Jeffrey Clarick. Mm-hmm. David Crane was one of the writers on Friends, one of the geniuses mm-hmm. on And that had a great uh, audience, but it, it never made it. But you can sense uh, in doing the shows whether the audience reacts to it. And uh, I knew then and there that how good that show was. And, I also, you know, you talked about casting before and how lucky you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did, that show was done in 94, and I had agreed to do four pilots already, and they sent me, Martin and David sent me that script, and I said to my agent, wow, I have to do this show. In fact, 95% of the script that was sent to me ended up on the air. So I said, I have to do it. So it was the last pilot I did in 1994, and those six people were available. So that'll tell you how lucky (laughs) you have to be. yeah. You know, Jen had another show that we were in second position. She was doing a show called Muddling Through on CBS, which somehow they got her out of. And Matt Perry had done another pilot, and that pilot didn't go. But those six people...
0: And you think about if something had been just a little different, that chemistry wouldn't have been there. And these are now iconic TV characters. Uh, But you're right. People don't realize how much of... I mean, I, I think this occasionally when you, when you find out that Humphrey Bogart was like the ninth choice to be in Casablanca, you know, <laughs> and it, it, he was not thought of as, he was not a leading man. And, but, you know, that's how it worked. He was available. And right. a bunch of the other people they wanted were not available. And so that's how we get Humphrey Bogart as Rick in Casablanca. And it's the same thing with these television shows. It's uh, a million things have to go wrong for it to go right.
2: Yeah. It was amazing. That, you know, it, it's, so I often, you know, people, how, how, how did you find, they think, they think of them now as stars. And how did you get them to agree to do friends? <laughs> but they weren't. They were, you know, Lisa was, Lisa was on the cheers. She was on the cheers. She played uh, an actor mm-hmm. in Woody, in uh, Woody Harrelson was in a community theater and she was the actress with Woody. And so, uh, you know, it's just, you know, they were unknown. Nobody knew these people. And all of a sudden, bang. That's, that's the kind of show I like. I like a show where you bring a cast of people nobody's ever seen before. Right. You know, because then the audience feels like they've created a hit by liking these people and they've created stars. So that's because you bring these people, you've never seen them before, so you have this sense of surprise. When you cut to these six on Cheers, you cut to the people on uh, on Friends. Yeah, I'm sorry, you cut six on Friends and you cut to the people on Cheers or Taxi. You, you have no history with them.
0: Right. So Will the, and Grace. I yeah, didn't Will know those Grace. performers. Yeah. No.
2: So they open their mouths and, oh, my God.
0: I also think there's something when the people watching it have, it's the people that made them stars. Right. They weren't brought in as stars. Right. So, you know, we're saying, no, those people are stars. I like these guys, uh, them, they're it. And that's, that's much more magical than oh, yeah. this person's been around in show business for 30 years as a legend, and now we're going to give them their own show.
2: Right, right. So that's that's almost all the shows I've I've ever done. Have I tend not to want to work uh, if if you've got a star in the show? It just you know because you have to serve the star, and you know it's just it throws off stuff for me. I like the the, the unknowns and and having an audience discover the unknown.
0: Well, this has been a huge. As I said, I said at the beginning. Uh, looking forward to this. This is a treat for me, a uh, huge treat, because I love your work. I love television. You're so smart about comedy. And I do recommend people. This book is fantastic. And you can read this book if you're, if you're in theater, read this book. If you're interested in television, read this book. If you're interested in comedy writing, read this book comedy performing read this book it's just uh, and read it a different time for each reason
4: um, uh, <laughs> buy but different copies. yeah buy different copies <laughs> yeah
0: um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is. And I'll, on a personal note, I'll tell you, when I got started uh with my late night show and was going through a really difficult period and getting written off all the time and constantly reading that I was going to be canceled, I ended up, I'd say about a year or two into the show, it was very early on, and I ran into you someplace, and you were very encouraging to me and said some nice things to me, and it meant the world to me. It I was a, It that. was a huge deal. And I remember thinking, well, if... James Burroughs thinks <laughs> I'm doing an okay job, then I think that I'm just going to live off that for about a year uh, or or 30. Uh, so um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for, I mean, I think you have provided me with maybe uh, 85,000 laughs in my life, so.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah,
0: yeah. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. this show is sponsored by better help we all sometimes have issues or things we need to talk about get off our chest i have that all the time don't you sona i do yeah and we need people to talk to and we carry around different stressors we carry big stressors we carry small stressors uh, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to kind of bottle it up, and I've learned over time that that's not the best thing to do. If you do let things rattle around in there for a while without talking it out, it can affect your life very negatively. Well, therapy is a safe space where you can get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. A lot of people have a barrier towards getting therapy because they think, "Well, I don't know. I've got to find the person, talk to them. What if I? It's not a good match. I then it's awkward. None of that. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash Conan today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp. Help dot com slash Conan. I'm coming in hot and loaded for bear oh. today. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, which is, I have something I want to talk about. I'm trying to reveal my true personality uh, on this podcast, and I think it's come out over the time. I, I occasionally make jokes, and people probably think, "Well, that's not real." Conan's exaggerating that for comedic He's being self-deprecating. But I think over the years, whether on TV or here on the podcast, I've talked about how I have no body awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not in touch with my body. Um, very New England, Catholic, Irish. You've noticed that over the years, right? What do you
1: mean you're not in touch? Like, you don't know how big you, like, how big you are? What? Or you're just not in touch with it, like, you don't t- touch yourself?
0: <laughs> okay, well, this... Got derailed instantly. I'm sorry. I was what just I'm trying saying to is figure
1: out what you meant that you're not in touch with yeah, your I'm not body. Clear either. Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, I make jokes over the years about how I I don't I'm not someone that's nude a lot. Do you know oh, what I mean? Oh, I get of those people, it.
1: Okay. I, I don't have a lot of
0: body consciousness.
1: Right. I see. Say, yeah. it, was
0: that not clear? Now I get it. You've okay. Made it clear. But I do. I touch myself constantly. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> oh God. But I but I wear, I'm blindfolded. So I <laughs> oh. I'm I'm constantly uh, using my hands to try and find out what's going on. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) down there, but I do it with my eyes closed and blindfolded. But anyway, my point is that I I say that and I think people probably take it with a grain of salt, meaning, oh, he's just, he's playing up that role. Sure. (laughs) I had an experience recently that drove home for me just how out of touch I am with my own body, which is uh, I I've been running a lot in the last year I think I started doing it during COVID I was running a lot running a lot running a lot and then my left foot really started to hurt mm. and I went in to get it checked out And they said you have it's very common plantar fasciitis uh, you know your arch the 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 tissue there is is really activated and it's, it, it, and I'm sure that's quite common with runners. Uh, this doctor recommended, she said, go see this woman. I won't say her name. I want to respect her privacy, but she's great. She's, this woman is great and she specializes in, in feet and working on feet. So I went to see this woman and uh, she's terrific. Uh, she's originally from Scotland. She's got this amazing mm. Scottish accent and she's really funny and a great storyteller. So she'll be there and she'll, you know, work on my feet and try and, fix my arch on my left foot while she's uh, spinning these great tails and I she's she's fantastic. But the first day I went, she said, All right, let's take a look. I don't do a Scottish accent, but she's like, you know, ah see <laughs> ah, <laughs> ah, <that's, laughs> ah, your foot. And so uh, Groundskeeper Willie. Yeah, she's sort of a ground she sounds like Shrek or Groundskeeper Willie. And so I take off my shoe and she's like, Oh, ah, let's be seeing what you're having here. You know 100% from Ireland. <laughs> yeah.
4: Just
0: never set foot in Scotland, yeah. this <laughs> woman. When I said she's Scotch, she enjoys Scotch, but she's okay. right. She's Irish. Yeah. Uh, no, so anyway, she takes, I take off my, uh, my, my shoe. She's looking at my foot and she goes, oh man, look at your foot. And I looked down at my foot and I realized I have never spent any time in my life looking at my own foot, really? oh. never, ever. Ever and I'm here's I'm not exaggerating. So I had I took off both shoes and I'm looking down at my feet and she was commenting on how they're not that malleable. They're like me, they're kind of uptight and they need <laughs> to be stretched. And my she said your toes are all crammed together, there's no space between them. Oh. And I'm seeing it all for the first time. <laughs> and this is a part of my body. <laughs> she might as well have been showing me like a quartz crystal that she found in a mountain. Like I was just like, wow, look at that. It's my fucking feet yeah, nice. without any socks on them. <laughs> and I'm looking at them as if it's a new mystery. And then she goes, and I'm not looking at my foot at this point. She goes, oh, and you've got a web to- webbed toes. On- <gasps> Two of my toes are attached with webbing. And I said, which foot? Because I knew, but I didn't know which foot. What? And she shit. was like, what? She was like, your left foot. And I looked and sure enough, like my, I think it's my f- f- third and fourth toes. I have like a webbing that goes up high. There's My toes are super long. What? Um, my brother has that. Yeah, and she goes, oh, and she says like, that's a, you know, what, they used to think that was a sign of royalty or something, some bullshit someone made up who was stuck with a web toe. <laughs> I should mention my brother is Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your brother, Aquaman yeah. is. So anyway, I didn't immediately know, I was like looking up at the ceiling when she said, you've got a webbed toe, and I know that, kind of, But I couldn't tell you which foot. Now you'd think, am I wrong? That feels That's weird. Very screwed up. That that is really weird. Why are
3: you clipping your toenails? You're not ever like who clips their toenails? (laughs) That's the second the second thing
0: she said (laughs) was she she was like Christ. I can't do it, Captain. Yes. It's like Freddy Krueger down you here. You look like Freddy Krueger down here. Because I've let them grow like Howard Hughes. They've been growing no. since 1963. Oh, who let? they down here. Oh, you got your little down here. Oh. <laughs> you're fucking. Um, wow. No, 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 you're I, no. no, no I do, but I don't really. I'm not. What I'm saying is, wow. Why? I'm not. I'm just not in touch with my own. Body, And I realized that the, my least favorite question is if I go to a doctor, I'm seeing anyone about a sore back or anything and they tell you, okay, how does this feel? Now, how does this feel? I don't like it. Cause right. I say, I don't know. I don't know how things feel. <laughs> oh, oh my what do you mean, God. how do things feel?
1: Why are I'm, you like this?
0: <laughs> I, well, I think you could get an answer from, uh, uh, parents. <laughs> oh, but I don't think there's, I, I think, uh, you know. I
3: think you need to go home, take off every stitch of clothing, stand in front of a full length mirror and get to know Conzi.
1: Can you do that? Can you literally, can you, can you no. actually do that? No,
0: because I'm telling you, and I'm not even kidding. If I stood naked in front of a full length mirror to get to know m- my own body, I would be doing bits. Within a second, I would be doing bits and takes. I would not. I would not be able to be real. I would. I would. I'm telling you, and this is me being completely honest. But who doesn't know at my age exactly which two toes are wet? Yeah, that is a little strange. That's weird. Like if
1: you had a birthmark on your back, you would you be able to know at least that? Like, is I mean- Well, is I would, there,
0: would I be able to see it or whatever? I, I mean,
1: like, you know, would you have known that? Oh, or would yeah. a
0: lover have to tell me? Oh. You know you have no. a 666 on your scalp, right? <laughs> oh, Jesus. I'm quite aware of that. Okay. Because he comes by every now and then and <laughs> says, remember the contract, a talk show from Total Obscurity. What's your request? And I came through on it. Then you come back and what a successful podcast. <laughs> and I agreed to that, but you will pay in the next life. Anyway, um, that's Lauren Michaels, by the way. Uh, um, <laughs> well, I'm b- blown podcast. away that you don't know your own feet. <laughs> I didn't know my own feet, and you now she said, in uh, this 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 person who works on feet, this uh, this this Scottish woman who's fantastic. She said a lot of people don't know their feet really? because we just she said no one cares about their feet until their feet hurt. Oh. And um resignation? Oh. <laughs> I thought you were resigning and it just said rap question mark. But they
1: would still know which toes are, are webbed. That's you don't have to spend a lot of time. I know, looking but this at is one feet. of those
0: things is that I don't think I have any awareness about my body. And I don't like it when people want me to describe where's the pain or how does the pain feel? Because I think I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what feels better, this or that. But they're
1: just trying to help you. Yeah.
0: I know, but I, it's, it's my least, I've told my wife that. I said my least favorite question is, how does this feel? I'm like, I don't know how things feel. <laughs> Let's just get through this Jeez. and get to the grave. <laughs> there's so much to unpack.
3: Do you, when you're sleeping, don't you ever kind of wiggle your toes and then you know that two are moving with each other on one foot? And no, there's, the uh, there's,
0: I, no. The, first of all, you can't feel, there's nothing, the, the web toes don't feel but any you different. Can Feel one pulling the other. No, I'm they sure. don't articulate. My toes don't really even articulate. What?
3: You just have no jointed toes.
0: No, they 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 should articulate. I have all the equipment down there. Trust me, I got all the equipment. Okay, so he's doing it again. No, yeah. no, no. That's not a sexual thing. I just mean my. I, I'm just talking in a sexual way about my toes. Okay. But but what I'm saying is that uh, I don't know. I couldn't like grasp something with my toes you know what I mean? Can you do that? Could you grasp I mean, Yeah, the thing but with not your toes? like an
3: ape But yeah, I could well, I You're can pick
0: somewhat ape-like I guess You're a very intelligent Fussy ape
3: I can pick up A TV remote control With my feet I mean, I don't Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not-
0: You can type with your feet And play the piano With your feet But you're not like an ape No uh, you do beautiful scrimshaw with your feet. You make origami with your feet, but you're not an
3: ape. Well, oh, I'll take that over this guy that doesn't even know he has feet. Yeah. I don't know
0: I have feet. Are I'm, you comfortable
1: with your body? Like, if you went to a nude beach and everybody no, was getting naked, you'd be like, not. let's do this, guys. Of course
0: I'm not But n- you, are, you were
1: in a bit once with Chelsea Handler where you were like, not naked, but you had a, yeah, a, a yeah.
0: you know, a nude Yeah, outfit. but I don't, that's not my preference. That's when you do a bit with Chelsea Handler, it's understood you must be naked, oh. <laughs> but, and I will do anything for comedy, but it's not my preference to be naked.
1: Oh. Uh,
0: it's not my natural state, even though it is my yeah, natural literally. state. I yeah. love it. Um, when
1: we go to the Korean spa, I'm like, let's do this.
0: My mother said I was born in a little three-piece suit. Oh. oh yes yeah. yeah. No. <sighs> well, I, I, maybe this is too personal, but what do you sleep in? Oh, uh, I sleep in boxer briefs and in t-shirt. Okay. And then long socks. (laughs) Go. And a Nixon mask. (laughs) 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 And when I wake up, I go, it's going to be a
4: great day.
0: (laughs) Conan O'Brien needs a friend.
3: With Conan O'Brien, Sonam of Sessian, and Matt Gorley. Produced by me, Matt Gorley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Joanna Solitaroff and Jeff Ross at Team Coco and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf Theme song by The White Stripes Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino Take it away, Jimmy Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples Engineering by Will Beckton. Additional production support by Mars Melnick Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista and Britt Kahn A Team Coco production in association with Earwolf.